Romans chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 to 11 again, and I encourage you to keep this passage open in front of you. We do have it on the screen because I would like again for all of us to read it together. Uh, So lift your voices with me, will you? And let's declare the word of the Lord, the scriptures here in this gathering today. So you have no excuse, anyone, whoever you are, who sit in judgment. When you judge someone else, you condemn yourself because you who are behaving as judge are doing the same things. God's judgment falls, we know, in accordance with the truth on those who do such things. But if you judge those who do them and yet do them yourself, do you really suppose that, what, that, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to bring you to repentance? But by your hard, unrepentant heart, you are building up a store of anger for yourself on the day of anger or the day of judgment, the day when God's just judgment will be unveiled, the God who will repay everyone according to their works. When people patiently do what is good and so pursue the quest for glory and honor and immortality, God will give them of the age to come. But when people act out of selfish desire and do not obey the truth, but instead obey injustice, there will be anger and fury. There will be trouble and distress for every single person who does what is wicked. The Jew first and also equally the Greek, the Gentile, that would be you and me. And there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, the Jew first, and also the Greek or the Gentile. God, you see, shows no partiality. This chapter, again, as we began digging into it last week, makes clear to us that no one of us has a secure morally superior platform to stand upon in order to self-righteously pronounce judgment or condemnation on others. Anyone who presumes, Paul says, to have such a vantage point is living in a dangerous fantasy, oblivious to the gospel that levels all of us before a holy God. So Paul's warning here in the passage at hand that we've just read together should transform us and the way we think and relate. It should transform our outlook on the world and on one another. And even as we face this matter that we've been dealing with in this series of homosexuality and how we would talk about that, and debate perhaps about it, and talk about those people that are to be loved. This is more than just an issue of our culture. This is about a people that are to be loved, as Christ would have us love them. 
So now that we've set the table, and I encourage you to refer to last week's message, those of you that weren't here, um, now that we've set the table, how then should we respond as His church to this challenging pastoral, political, and social reality of our time and our culture in this broken, post Christian world. What if we were to really give ourselves to the heart of Jesus in this? What is the life and look of His love, agape? What is it to look like in practical terms here in the life of our congregation, in our life together as a congregation of Christ followers. Well, understanding that the New Testament will not permit us to condone homosexual activity and behavior, we still find ourselves confronted by complex problems that demand rigorous, and compassionate solutions. How should what we have studied together so far in this series on this matter, how should this be embodied now in our lives and in the life of the church, in the life of our church? I want to invite you, invite us, to consider together this morning and Next Sunday, as we will actually be concluding this series next Sunday, and believe it or not, we're already moving into the season of Lent and into Easter already, but I want to invite us to consider together several key issues and venture together some discernments based on what we've studied and reflected upon, and been challenged by in the Scriptures to this point, over and above all else, as those who uphold the biblical teaching against homosexual activity and behavior, this reminder of Paul's that we've just read together in Romans, his letter to the Romans, his warning in this passage at hand, That we are all without excuse. We all stand or fall under God's gracious judgment and mercy. All of us. All of us, sinners, made saints in Christ Jesus. So, here we go. What does living this out, living the text, look like? For us here. And I'm going to put this before us by way of questions for us to consider together. First of all, should the church support civil rights for homosexuals? Yes, absolutely we should. Most certainly. The church should not single out homosexual persons for malicious, discriminatory, 
dehumanizing treatment, as sadly the church has been known to do. Insofar as we Christians, Christ followers, have done in the past, we must repent and seek instead to live out the gospel of reconciliation. All of us, as I said a moment ago, are great sinners in need of a greater Savior. Yeah? Every one of us. Secondly, can homosexual persons be members of the Christian church? Well, this is rather like asking, can envious persons be members of the church? Romans 1, verse 29. Or can alcoholics be members of the church? Or can gossips and slanderers and backstabbers and proud and greedy and self-righteous and boastful persons be members of the church? We might as well ask those questions too then. In actuality and factuality, of course they are. Unless we think that the church is a community of sinless perfection, we must acknowledge that persons of homosexual orientation are welcome along with other sinners in the company of those who trust in the faithfulness of God who justifies the ungodly. If they are not welcome, beloved, I will have to walk out the door along with them. Leaving in the community only those entitled to cast the first stone. Obviously, this means, beloved, that for the foreseeable future, we must find ways to live within the church in a situation of serious moral disagreement at times while still respecting one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. If the church is going to start practicing the discipline of exclusion from the community, how many know there are other issues that are far more important than homosexuality where we should begin to draw a line in the dirt? How about violence, for one? How about racial prejudice? How about materialism, for example? At the same time, I would argue that the pastoral task of the church is to challenge self-defined gay Christians and all Christ followers, for that matter, to reestablish and reframe our core identity in conformity with the gospel of Christ Jesus. That is, 
And I've said this already in this series, and I'm going to say it again because it bears repeating over and over. As a Christ follower, one's primary core identity, that which is central to who they are, is found in Christ Jesus Himself. His death and His resurrection. Those of us who hold the offices of teaching and preaching in the church should with humility uphold the biblical standard and call all who here to follow as I'm even seeking to do through this series. And loved ones, this right here is an important piece of it. Please hear this. That the church would become a loving, supportive, non-condescending community. Not compromising. A non-compromising community, but a loving, supportive, non-condescending community of spiritual and moral, ethical formation that would foster and enable lives lived Conformed to the image of Christ. Transformed in the renewing of our minds. That the church would be a spiritual family that would appropriately bear one another's burdens and trials and tests and temptations together. For the gay Christian who, while contending with his or her same-sex attraction and disposition, has committed themselves to follow Christ, has committed themselves even to a life of celibacy, they need a family that will help them bear that significant burden. For many gay Christians, this is a very, very difficult thing to find. It's very hard work for them to find just such a community as I've described here. A family of supportive brothers and sisters, each also having our own various burdens our own inborn tendencies to sin, all of us, that need bearing together. As I challenge us with this, I'm thinking right now of the story that I recently read of Melissa. Melissa, a lesbian who accepted the biblical historical teaching of the church on sexuality even while she struggled with this orientation. Melissa asked her pastors for a ceremony to celebrate and affirm her lifelong commitment to celibacy. 
In considering this, her pastors asked her what she was going to need from the church. She said she was going to need them more than anything to be the family that she was giving up in leaving and removing herself from the gay community. She needed her church to be that family. Do you know what they told her? They told her that with where the church was presently at, this was not going to happen. People were too busy. They had their own lives. Beloved, as a church that holds to the biblical view of sexuality and marriage, we must wake up and realize that if we expect people to sacrifice for sexual chastity, we are going to have to sacrifice ourselves somehow to support them and stand with them and walk with them and be family. For all of us, it is possible for humankind to live without sexuality. It is possible. without sexual activity. It would be wrong to reduce our sexuality, whether homosexual or heterosexual. It would be wrong to reduce our sexuality to simply a desire to have sex. But it is not possible for us to live without some measure of appropriate, non-sexual, relational intimacy. You hearing what I'm saying? We can live without sexual activity in our lives. It is possible, believe it or not. But it is impossible for any human being to live without relational contact and intimacy in a healthy, appropriate fashion. We all need that to some measure. In varying degrees, we are all different, of course, but we all need that in some measure. Appropriate, non-sexual relational intimacy, shared goals and values, mutual support and ongoing commitment. We all need that. That which is to be found in family and spiritual community. These questions, admittedly, are difficult. So difficult that we must receive one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and work together toward discerning and deciding and navigating our differences through reflecting the attitude of the life-giving word. The attitude of Christ Jesus. The witness of the Scriptures that we have. 
We must take our stand without compromise, of course, but we must take it on grace, truth, and love. Figuring out how to stand on these three and what that is to look like for us, that's hard work. It doesn't come easily or naturally. The question of homosexuality defies simple answers. In this series, I have endeavored to not give thin answers to thick questions. It's too easy to dismiss this important matter and these real people to be loved out of hand and without thought. But in this series, I have been deliberate in calling us to think deeply and to study thoroughly. This is a complex conversation about a difficult subject. And I would be in sin if I had the audacity to declare that I have it all figured out. Because I don't. But before God and before you, I pray that this series of sermons, along with our ongoing conversation and thoughts and study, which I trust will not end with this series, will guide us toward the life and look of love in a broken world. And thereby we would bring honor and glory to our Lord and our King, who does have it all figured out. Thanks be to God. We need to hold our views with a humble heart and an open hand. Inviting God to correct us where we have been wrong. We must do our best to lay aside our assumptions and genuinely seek to explore and know what the Bible, not our tradition, not our opinion, what the Bible, not our personally held beliefs, but what the Bible actually says about homosexuality. We must be willing to go where the biblical text and the Holy Spirit lead, even if we are led toward a challenge to change our view. Beloved, there is no such thing as an unbiased reading of the Bible. You, you realize that, right? We all read the Bible with a bias. All of us. But the Bible also reads us. And reads our bias. And challenges our bias. It's impossible to read the Bible without a bias. We all bring our own biases, our own assumptions, 
our own presuppositions to the text when we read it. Even so, it is possible to give the text a fair reading and study. A reading and study that recognizes one's own biases and invites others to point them out. Lovingly, graciously, truthfully, those three legs that we've been talking about, love, grace, and truth. That is why these gathered times that we share together even at times like this on Sunday morning, that is why these times of reading and studying the Bible together are are so important in community. That's something we need to understand about the life of the church as well. Bible reading is not just something we are to personally do. Our own personal thing. That's important. Daily personal Bible reading and study. But the Scriptures were always something that were, were, were walked through and worked through and studied in community together in the church as well. This is an ancient practice. This has been going on from the time that Jesus inaugurated the church. The days of the original Pentecost. The Scriptures have always been considered together, studied together, read together, in community together. And there's a reason for that. The reason that I am giving right now that we might approach the Scriptures realizing that we all have our individual biases, but that together will come a better understanding as the Holy Spirit leads us. Here's the third consideration and piece of discernment that we'll consider this morning before we conclude our time together. In the pursuit of Christ-likeness, is it appropriate for Christ followers who experience themselves as having a homosexual orientation to continue to participate in same-sex activity. No. It's not. In a beautiful, brilliant, and poignant story, a great illustration of Jesus' balance of grace and truth, Jesus, being the only one who was entitled to cast a stone, instead charged the recipient of His mercy to go and sin no more. Do you remember the story? In John chapter 1, in John 8, John's Gospel tells the story of the woman who was accused of adultery. And they drag her before Jesus and throw her before Him. And they're all grabbing stones because they know that that such a situation is to be dealt with with a stoning unto death. Jesus is kneeled and He's doodling in the sand or something. We 
There's all kinds of predictions that have been made about what he was writing or what he was doing. We don't know for certain. And then he rises, and as they are challenging Jesus, the religious leaders who interestingly dragged her there, and it's it's always been interesting to me how they knew she was caught in adultery. How would they know that? They had to have actually been there. Makes you wonder whether it was with one of them. And here they are dragging her before them, and they're asking Jesus, They're testing him to see whether he will do what the law requires him to do. And Jesus, who has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, as we've studied together in our Sermon on the Mount series in days gone by, Jesus finally rises and he says to them, Whoever of you are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And all of a sudden, you could hear the thuds of all the stones on the ground as they dropped them and walked away because they knew that none of them qualified. We are all sinners saved by grace. And the work of our great Savior, King Jesus, who redeems us and calls us sons and daughters and saints, but yet continues to work that work of redemption and sanctification, even in our own hearts, as we move towards the day of Christ Jesus. But then he turns to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? And They'd all gone. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. What a powerful, poignant story of the love and truth and mercy of God, the compassion. It is no more appropriate for homosexual Christians to persist in homosexual activity than it would be for heterosexual Christians to pursue and continue to live in lives of fornication or adultery. Insofar as the church fails to teach clearly about heterosexual chastity outside of marriage, its disapproval of homosexual coupling will appear arbitrary and biased. We can't nail one and not the other. Unless they are able to change their orientation and enter a heterosexual marriage relationship, Homosexual Christians, rather, should seek to live lives of disciplined sexual abstinence. Just as heterosexual Christ followers who are not married and in a marriage relationship should live lives of disciplined sexual abstinence.
Despite the smooth illusions perpetrated by mass culture in Canada and the United States, sexual gratification is not a sacred right. And celibacy is not a fate that is worse than death. Even though our culture would make it out that way. And spin it and twist it in that way. The Catholic tradition has something to teach us, I believe. Those of us raised in Protestant communities. While mandatory priestly celibacy is unbiblical, a life of sexual abstinence can promote, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 35, serving the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Surely it is a matter of some significance for Christian ethics that both Jesus and Paul lived without sexual relationships. It's also worth noting that 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9, and 25 to 40, commends celibacy as an option for everyone. Not just for a special order of ordained leaders. Within the church, I believe we need to work diligently to recover the dignity, esteem, and value of the single life. Individuals in the church that are single and have been single, and I've seen this over the years, they've been stigmatized. They've been treated as less than often, inferior, that, that they're not really complete until they're married. All the influences of our culture and the spirit of the world upon us. Marriage is a wonderful thing, obviously. I support it. But the single life is not inferior to it. You are not less than. You are not an individual who, well, once, someday, when I finally get married, then I'll be complete and a whole individual and I won't be other than everyone else. We need to work diligently to recover the dignity and esteem and value of the single life. One lifelong gay-oriented devoted follower of Christ with an urgency for the imperatives of discipleship put it this way. Are homosexuals to be excluded from the community of faith? Certainly not. But anyone who joins such a community should know 
that it is a place of transformation, of discipline, of learning, and not merely a place to be comforted or indulged. Beloved, the community of Christ, our community of Christ here, locally, demands that its members pursue holiness while it also sustains the challenging process of character formation that is necessary for disciples of Jesus. The church must be a community whose life together provides true friendship and kinship and emotional support and spiritual formation for everyone who comes within its circle of fellowship. Everyone who comes within our circle of fellowship. The need for such support is perhaps particularly felt by unmarried people, regardless of their sexual orientation. In this respect, as in so many others, the church, we can fulfill our vocation only by living as a subversive, countercultural community to the world. A community that provides the family that is needed for the disciple of Jesus to live the life they have been called to live as they seek to follow him. Oh, that we would be a community that does not judge and condemn and self-righteously look down our spiritual noses, but that realizes that we all together stand on level ground before the cross of Christ. And that together we need one another to bear one another's burdens, to help one another in test and trial and temptation. And with each of the inclinations that we each have to sin, whether it be greed or jealousy or slander or gossip or indeed homosexuality, any of these that Paul has listed for us, that we would find family together, that our cities and region would find family here that is supportive and that, yes, is, is not compromising on the Word of God and His call to us ethically and morally, but yet does so with love and grace and truth and compassion just as Jesus himself has demonstrated for us. Is it easy? No. Is this a hard challenge? Of course it is. Can we do this in our own strength? Absolutely not. We need the Holy Spirit. And we need one another.